showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. Tonight, folks, settle in. It's rainy out there. It's blustery. Perfect night to settle in in your comfy chair on the couch and watch the show. Tonight, we're going to be talking about witches. In specific, the Witches Book of the Dead. That's right. Tonight, we're going to go all the way to Salem with our guest tonight. Our guest tonight, his name is Christian Day. He's written this book. We're going to talk about necromancy and all things dead. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark. For Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Now this is a this is a fascinating book, you know. I, I've got my notes done here. Um what possessed you, and I, I use that word loosely. <laughs> write a book uh, of the dead of all things um, maybe because I, go ahead I, I felt that in many ways our culture our western culture uh, had really neglected the honoring of our dead that it's something that years ago even when I was a child you know and I'm, I'm only 41 but I remember as a kid people were a lot more cognizant of you know visiting the graveyards and honoring their loved ones on the other side and about 10 years ago a, a tour friend guide friend of mine in New Orleans named Bloody Mary was telling me how Wiccans and witches would come on her tour from around the world and they would freak out when she would communicate with the dead and being from Salem, where witches in Salem, you know, we're always talking to the dead. It's part of what we do. I would ask her, well, that seems kind of strange because that's part of being a witch. And it made me realize just how many witches out there were really not including the ancestral reverence, the reverence from those friends and loved ones that, that died you know, during our lives that reach out to us from the other side. And I, I felt like, you know, it needed to be told and it took me about 10 years before I was able to sit down or about nine years before I was able to sit down and truly write it and I had the idea kicking around and and it just it was important to me that people realized that you know the dead long to be connected to us you know those people on the other side it's it's more than just paranormal investigation and you know trying to prove the existence of spirits it's about a bond Precisely. Now, when you say you contact the dead and you communicate with them, uh, traditionally speaking, uh, you had mentioned your relatives before. Is that primarily the source of information that you derive from from the other side? Is your your past relatives, or is it? Um, it's every that? it's it's everything. It's people. Uh, you know, I try to pick the right people for the right. You know, you uh, you know, I keep an ancestral altar in my home. 
and I honor all those spirits that I wish to keep connections with. You know, they include my uncle and my mother, you know, people that were related to me, but they also include very close family friends, a dog, you know, energies of those people that were important to me and who I want to keep relationships with. And sometimes I might add people that are helpful to me in some way. You know, I often say the Virgin Mary is busy and Isis has better things to do. But you can call on the spirit of your departed grandmother who will be invested in helping you. And look at Catholicism. They call on the dead every day. You call on St. Anthony for a lost object. You call on St. Michael for... Well, he's more of an archangel. You know, but you call on St. Jude for hopeless causes. These were people that were once alive, therefore dead. You know, so we, we, you know, it's something we do, we just don't know we do it. And I wanted to bring it out there and say this is important. And it's not just that we only call on the dead when we need something. We really should build that relationship. You know, some spirits move on, they reincarnate, they find other planes of existence. Many of them stay around, and it's not just because they're lost souls or they're angry or they're, you know, dark entities. It's because they truly love the connection. And that's part of their lesson. That's part of their mission. You know, some of them stay behind to be great teachers. www.nightfrightshow.com, folks. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a place where you can order this book from the comfort of your own home. Tonight's a great night for that. It's pouring rain out there. It's freezing. Great book for you, folks, to get. Now, we're talking about... Christian Day's book called The Witch's Book of the Dead. Now, you're a practicing witch. You're in Salem. You're a practicing witch. Now, I, I read in the book that there's a stigma now associated with the word warlock because, you know, um, I go back to the bewitched era. And, oh, it's, funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say there's a stigma now because, frankly, there never was when I was a kid. Around the 1970s, mm-hmm. um, you know, witches began to associate the word warlock with someone who betrayed witches to the witch hunters. And that's really a misunderstanding of what the word meant in its Scottish origins, you know, and that's if you believe them. You know, there's two competing origins for the word warlock. One is the Scottish where Loga from 10, uh, 10, I believe it's 1023 AD, or Common Era, if you prefer that. And that where Loga meant oathbreaker, traitor, liar, devil, you know, male sorcerer, etc. But it all meant someone who violates the norms of good Christian society. So in that regard, I guess I am a warlock. I'm not a Christian. I defy the church by practicing the arts of witchcraft. There's another less popular, but I think possibly truer, origin of the word in the Nordic Vardlakur, which meant a song to summon the spirits. And so it was a song that they would sing. And this goes back to, you know, roughly 950 A.D. And the, uh, the saga of Red. And the idea is that they would sing this song to call the spirits. And then the psychic would then listen to the dead. And they weren't always the same person. You'd have the witch that was listening to the dead. And you'd have the singer that would call upon the spirits with the song. And so the Vard Lacour, I, I believe, you know, and I'm meeting not too long from now with a professor of uh, Scandinavian folklore and mythology who wants to talk about this Who from Harvard who has research that traces the word warlock but a lot of witches have read the one, one books of today that really don't have any primary source material I mean if you looked through my book you saw in the in the bibliography and in the notes that I use a lot of really original primary source material or 
source material that's been collected into collections of primary source material. So it's stuff from the ancient world, the ancient Greek magical papyri, the Odyssey, you know, the, the texts of long ago. It's not just one of these Wicca books that, you know, takes every other Wicca book and just regurgitates it. I mean, there's no real... In fact, I have a $1,000 contest on my Facebook that the first person that can provide me with source material that says prior to 1950 that a witch, is, a warlock is someone who betrays their coven, and that's why they were called the warlock, I'd give them a grant. No one's claimed it in 10 months. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of questions that have arisen now. Um, you had mentioned that you're personally at odds with Catholicism. Was it always the case with witchcraft? With uh, you know, I think back to the Gnostic texts. Well, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not at personally. Yeah, I'm not personally at odds with Catholicism. I was more saying they were personally at odds with what we do. That's what I, mean. I, I. Right. I think Jesus was an amazing teacher, and I think there's all kinds of magic in Catholicism. I visited the shrine of Saint Jude at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in New Orleans, where I lit a candle, and I visited the shrine of St. Expedite, and I got holy water at the Grotto of Mary. I find much magic in Catholicism. But what I mean by that is, you know, they want to call me a warlock because I practice witchcraft. Okay, I'm a warlock. You know, it's, I just don't have an issue with the word. I think it's a fun word. You know, I like the word. Is it Hollywood, do you think, that took the word warlock and all of a sudden started to associate it with devil worshipping and everything else? Do well, you think in it witchcraft, got bastardized no. somewhere along there? No, I think it happened long before Hollywood. I think Hollywood is more of a reflection of society than a definer of it. You know, I think many, many centuries, many centuries ago, this propaganda was created against pagan religions. You know, the old horned gods of nature became the devils of Christianity, and and this was a process that happened over many centuries. And and it was interesting because you know the earlier texts Moses is often seen with horns. You know, there's there's all kinds of hidden mythology that we just don't talk about anymore. But the reality is, it all blends together. I mean, one of the reasons I love you know talking about New Orleans, I love New Orleans so much because it's the one place on earth that I've ever been where Christianity, witchcraft, voodoo, Judaism, and all the other religions become real all at once. And to truly understand what I mean by, well, how can they all be real? You have to go there. You know, there's, there's an energy there. It's just, it, I've had very profound Catholic experiences, voodoo experiences, and witchcraft experiences all on the same street. You know, it's fantastic. Is there a different energy in place in Salem as opposed Absolutely. to... Absolutely. Can you describe Absolutely. perhaps the differences? I look at Salem as a sister city to New Orleans because both Salem was an enormous port town for... The, you know, most of the 17th century, most of the 18th century, was, New Orleans was the number one port town. You know, Salem was before it. So they're both port cities. They're both places that have a magical, dark history. But New Orleans is more synchronistic. You know, all the streets are built on grids. There are the ley lines that connect Congo Square to Jackson Square to the center of the river. There's this whole energy that is very synchronistic, and I get lost on the grid. You know, most people think, oh, that's more organized. I get lost. Here in New England, everything is built on old cow paths, so the streets are windy, chaotic. The area of Salem is built upon an extinct volcano, and the Native Americans, when they first came here, this is long before the witch trials in the 1620s. When they first came here, the Puritans, the Native Americans, would trade with them, but they would neither sleep here nor live here because they called it the bad place and they felt to live here would drive a person insane. 
kind of explains a lot of my neighbors. But you know, the idea here is that, that, that Salem is a chaotic energy. If you can exist in that chaos, which New England is very chaotic in general, but if you can exist in that, you can succeed. I've managed to, but it, you know, it, it does take a lot out of you. I love going to New Orleans for the recharge because it's the relax, who cares, just have a beignet and a coffee, you know, cafe au lait. You know, it's not so cafe uptight. Yeah. It's uptight here. The energy is very uptight, but they're both very magical cities. Folks, we're speaking with Christian Day, and we're talking about his book, The Witch's Book of the Dead. Easy way to get it, as always, uh, with all our guests, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover associated with tonight's guest, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can get this book online. Great night, as I keep saying for it. It's pouring outside. I can see outside the studio right now, and it's just teeming of rain virtually. Let's go back into this. Um, uh, you know, this is fascinating. I had Judica, Judica Ilks on the show, and uh, Isles, I'm sorry, and uh, she was telling me that uh, we were discussing the witch trials. You brought it up. And I always, my assumption is it was just pure persecution of women. And I often wonder if um, because witches are primarily cast as women in Hollywood films, etc., uh, and just on our cognizant level, I often wonder if that's the reason why there were so many, so many um, horrible, horrible witch trials. I think that it's interesting you say that because when I was uh, 21, I wrote a paper for college called The Vulnerability of Women to Witchcraft Accusations. And there definitely, I mean, the predominance was probably 85%. So there was this ancient association between the power of women to give birth, to heal, herbalism, that sort of thing, intuition, intuition more than anything, uh, that frightened people. You know, what can these women do? You know, they're secretive. You know, they keep these hidden agendas and they're psychic and intuitive and it's very frightening. So, absolutely. But at the same time, the witch trials of Europe were largely over by the time Salem happened. I think why Salem gained such notoriety, even though there were 20 people killed here versus the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in Europe, is because it was so aberrant. You, know, you had the occasional hanging here and there, but it was not like this enormous, where the entire community was, and most of the communities nearby, were focused on nothing else. It was, as they say on CNN, it was all witchcraft all the time. And that made it so aberrant, but it was also different than that. Yes, the majority were women, but persecution of women, I don't really think that was the big picture in Salem. I think it had more to do with identity is something that's still happening here i mean when i came when i first founded festival of the dead which is my event series in which i had the witches ball and the psychic fair and the vampires ball and a dinner for the dead and the whole nine yards throughout october you Tell know us i came more in about that and i'll cross it right off the list right now how's that <laughs> right well, the festival, you know this the witches ball is you know one of the most exciting halloween parties in the world and the dumb supper is where people sit for you know, two hours at a dinner where nobody speaks and everybody's in honor of the dead. And we do this 
because it brings out this connection to spirit in the people who participate. So instead of having a medium tell you, oh, this is what your dead grandmother says, you experience yourself. I mean, every year I get what I call the husbands sipping their dirty martinis and aggravated that their wives drag them to this horrible thing. And then they come to me afterwards saying, I saw my grandparents dancing across the ballroom floor. So it's very powerful and magical. You know, of course, the parties are more parties, the psychic fair, you know, you can commune with your, your spirits on the other side. We do seances. But when I first did it, I came into this atmosphere where it was like, we want Salem to be a maritime city with arts and culture and upscale shopping, you know, just like any other little seaport along the coast. And I just was boggled. You know, how could you fight with this identity? But that's really what was at the heart of the witch trials. Because you had all these people in, in, in Salem Village, which is now Danvers. That's where most of the victims... The trials were in Salem. A lot of people say, oh, no, they weren't in Salem. The trials were in Salem. Most of the people that were hanged and, and taken to trial and imprisoned in Salem were actually from Salem Village. And many of these people in Salem Village wanted to form their own little separate community with a separate church because the church was the center core of social life. That's, right. That's very, very key. So now some people saw that this was this emerging mercantile happening. You know, this is the late, remember, this is the late 1600s. This is right at the pivotal juncture, or as they say in the book world, the tipping point, right before Salem was about to become the most significant port town in the entire world. And so, by doing so, people saw that coming. They wanted to be, oh, we want to be part of Salem Church, Salem Town. Why? That's where the social atmosphere is. That's where you rub elbows. So there was this identity crisis between the people that wanted Salem Village, the people that wanted Salem Town. And so they kept firing minister after minister after minister for the local church in Salem Village because the people who wanted to attend church over in Salem Town didn't want to pay the money for the wood in the house and everything else. So now they're on to Reverend Paris. I believe he's minister number four or five. Could I think it's five, but I might be wrong about that. But... It's interesting that it's Paris's daughter, Betty Paris, and his niece, Elizabeth, and Anne Putnam, who's the daughter of Thomas Putnam, who was the biggest and loudest supporter of Paris and having a Salem Village church. It's interesting, theirs were the children that suddenly became afflicted. How convenient. You know, and yes, I think it started with the beggars, the whores, you know, Bridget Bishop, Sarah Good. So in actuality, I think the witch trials kind of began as children looking for something to do because remember, kids in Puritan society weren't allowed to play. They're acting, that you're educating me tonight. You see that? Right, well, they're, they're yeah. acting out in 1692. Salem was a way of saying, hey, well, you know, we're kids here. We want to have fun. In fact, Abigail Williams said in Deacon Ingalls' Ordinary, which was like a pub, I do it for sport. That's why when they try to say, oh, it was the rye bread or the ergo, they're full of it. It, it, it. These kids were acting out because it gave them attention. Now, then the adults catch on to this. Ooh, wait a minute. Now we've got a way to settle the score. And many of the people who were accused were, it was documented by Paul Boyers and Stephen Nissenbaum in their very dry book, Salem Possessed, that many of the people connected to, that were hanged were connected to the people who wanted to attend Salem Town proper. And so there was all this politics. You scratch beneath the surface of most things and you're going to find it comes down to the almighty buck. Yeah. 
Isn't yeah. that fascinating? You know, you're educating me, and that's why I'm being specifically quiet, because, folks, I have a confession. I don't know much about this subject matter, and when you have an expert on, you just shut up and you listen and you learn. Uh, the book is called The Witch's Book of the Dead. It's uh, Our guest tonight is, is Christian Day. He's the author of the book, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Now, uh, Christian, um, uh, going back to uh, Salem and the differences between New Orleans, uh, is there other, I guess you, I could say hot spots, uh, that might not be the correct term, in the world where witches and warlocks uh, come together because of the energy? Um, I think witches will be wherever there's good energy, and I think there are energy points all over the world, whether it be something as complex and grand as the Great Pyramids of Egypt or something as simple as a farmland that belonged to your grandmother and the family's been there for three centuries. You know, there's got vibe there. So it's not that simple, but I think that, you know, one of the places I've heard of, I've always wanted to go, is Catamaco in Mexico, which is called the, you know, Ciudad de los Brujos, you know, the city of the witches. Mm. So there are other places, but, and it's interesting you say this because the idea for my next book was to be about the spirit of place, which is that there is energy wherever you are. In some places, you know, that they call haunted, I often think of uh, the movie Session 9. And my reality show producer that I'm working with on developing a, a show with, I find out I'm on the plane with her to New York yesterday morning to go to a meeting about you know TV, and she comes out with that she was the producer of Session 9, which I nearly fell over because it's about Denver State Mental Hospital. My mother worked there in the Department of Youth Services wing, you know, which wasn't the mental patients, but you know, troubled teens when she was pregnant with me and used to walk up that creepy hill and it's one of the scariest asylums and now it's of course apartments and people say it's haunted and to a point it is but I think the real energy problem there is that it's steeped with the memories and the pain and the suffering of those who suffered while they lived many of those souls have moved on while their suffering remains behind trapped in the energy of the land that's when they say a house is cursed or the land is cursed when it cursed, it means that it's absorbed that negativity. It's more than just a haunting effect. I think it's worse. You know, a good exorcism will get rid of a ghost, but <laughs> spirit of place is a tougher thing. This begs a question, then. This, this pops to mind, Christian. Um, when you're accessing the, the energies from the other side, is there an inherent danger that you could tap into a negative energy? And I, I hesitate to use the word demon because it's, it's thrown around quite a bit but let's say you're accessing uh, you're trying to access some honest energy some good energy and all of a sudden you access I don't know perhaps somebody committed suicide was murdered and there's that negative energy that has stayed with that area is there an inherent danger that you could access that by mistake if you're absolutely, inexperienced absolutely but I also want to preface this by saying that the word demon or daemon comes from the ancient Greek, which essentially means a spirit, and it was neither good nor evil. So the, the, the hidden lesson there is that, frankly, everything is demonic in some way, but not in the Christian sense, in the sense that there are entities out there that never lived as human beings. There are other forms of energies. Human beings are not able to easily interpret it, so they translate it into images they can understand. And suddenly Isis has horns on her head and pretty eye, eye shadow. And, you know, when it was really just some energy, who knows if it really looked that way. But, you know, we interpret it that way. But my point being is that 
not all energies are favorable to us. Some of them may be wonderful, just not to us. You know, we, you know, many people are very nice people, but they see a spider walk in front of them and they might step on it, not because they're terrible people, because they're just terrified of spiders. You know, we all interact with our world in different ways. But the most important thing is that when you decide to work in the spirit world, it's not that the Ouija board is bad. I find them tedious. It's like texting. I can't stand texting. You know, you get your thumbs like I find a Ouija board the equivalent of texting. You know, I hear the spirit voice come through sometimes. And when I am using the Ouija board, eventually the voice will come and it's like, well, I can just hear you. Why am I going to sit there and go, A, B? It's not that the board's evil. It's just that any tool you use or even just sitting there and meditating and allowing spirit to come through turns on a light. And it says, food, it's like a dinner bell to the spirit world. You know, it's interesting. There was this movie years ago called, I think it was From Beyond, and once the, the people that were schizophrenic, their pineal glands expanded, which is funny because I've always seen that's the third eye. And they were able to see all the creatures that loom about if you could see the other world as clearly as you could see this one. And in a way, it's true. I mean, there are these energies that just randomly roam about looking for something to eat. And the easiest thing to eat is somebody dabbling without experience. It's why chapter 5 of the Witch's Book of the Dead is all about banishing an exorcism. I would have made it chapter 1, but the publisher and I collaboratively decided, well, this isn't, you know, you don't want to scare them right out of the gate. About the initial histories and concepts, and then before you get into any serious practical application, make sure, you know, you're going to do this the right way. I mean, talk about, you know, one of the most powerful energies and symbols to call on is the energy of Michael the Archangel. You know, which most people identify with Catholicism, but when I was researching this book, you'll find in, in that chapter 5 that Michael was an ancient energy with the Phoenicians, the Mesopotamians, the Syrians, the Greeks, the Vikings. They were energies the Egyptians had, Anubis, who held those scales, much like Michael. So there's this connection of the fiery spirit angel force with wings that protects us from the evil forms of witchcraft or rather i don't like to say evil forms of witchcraft so much as that you know negative magic or harmful magic do the energy forces on the other side you know you're you're talking about tapping into them do they ever tap into you and perhaps suck energy out of the living unintentionally absolutely and sometimes, many times, intentionally. I mean, you've heard the old term, the witch's teat. You know, they looked for the witch's mark. Um, the idea of that is that we do sometimes feed the spirits, sometimes intentionally. When I was on the show Ghost Adventures, a lot of people don't know the behind the scenes of this. I talk about this in the book. You know, they, they those three guys, Zach and Nick and Aaron, asked. You know, they asked me to be on this show through. You know, Jeff Belandra, who's a friend of mine, a paranormal author. He's been on the and, show too, folks. Check the archives. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, fantastic guy, and you know, really knows his stuff. And he, you know, I want you to come on the show, and because I had no idea what the hell it was. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I'm like, oh well, cool. And I get there, and I didn't really want the Lyceum to be heavily featured. I like the new restaurant they've become, but I, I wasn't crazy about them before, and I'd brought them a lot of publicity when I used to host events there, so maybe I was being just a little bit petty, but I didn't really want them to be the star of the show. So when I got to the Witch House, which was the first half of the show, 
I brought my friend Kelly, and that's her favorite show. So she's a, one of my coven sisters. And I brought her because I knew that she'd worked very hard for me that year and I, at my store, and I wanted her to be rewarded. So I said, well, why don't you come on? If this is your favorite show, I've like, never heard of it, but I'll go on. You know, and I said, lend me your energy. And I reached out in the direction of the Lyceum, and I said, Bridget Bishop. By the way, the Lyceum restaurant, it's now 43 Church Street, used to be Bridget Bishop, the witch trials victims apple orchard and her energy's always there when i went on the pen and teller show they kept telling me oh well our stuff won't break down i says oh yes it will the batteries kept needing to be replaced constantly things going wrong at that location so anyway um you know i knew she was going to be there for them and i was desperate that she wouldn't be so i said bridget you must depart that house if you've ever liked working with me spiritually please leave the you know i do not want you to give them any audience any show nothing so then we go in, and if you watch the show, when we went in, all their buzzers and little doodads and gadgets started to go crazy. And because I'm not much of a, you know, I write about ghost hunting, and I researched it all, and I worked with my friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley, you know, on the technical stuff of ghost hunting. But, you know, as I said in the book, I don't do a whole lot of it. I tend to be more of the sensitive. But I wrote that chapter because I believe that it's very important that the ghost hunting teams out there, of which there seems to be one in every street, you know, really be more careful about how they work with the spirits because what I walked into was appalling. Nice guys, really nice guys that do this show, but the way they approach the dead is awful, at least from what I saw. I said, well, you can't do this. You're very, you're screaming at them, getting all belligerent. Would you walk into somebody's home and do that? The hell do you think you're going to get now? Because I hear they're having all sorts of spiritual problems. Well, go figure. If you disrespect the dead, you think they're going to respect you back? So, I come in, and I did some. This is where the witch's tea comes in. And I pull out the, the medical lancet, and they didn't know I was really doing it. So I stuck my finger, and I put three drops of blood in the chalice. And this is ancient. Now, I always tell people, I'm not the most psychic. I have people working for me that are much more psychic and magical than me. I just know the tricks of the trade. That's why I put them in this book, because I figure, well, if I'm not the best shakes of a sorcerer, well, at least I know all these little steps I can do, and one of them is the blood. So they will come. And sure enough, they did, and that machinery went nuts. They called out my, the, the uh, Z, what's that? PX machine. PX machine called, uh, it kept saying, Apple, Apple, Apple. Right, yes. And, this is interesting, then the ghost box, which is the radio wavy thingy, yeah. called out my name, the name of the skull, and my full name. And finally... Because she, not only did she not show up at the Lyceum, because anybody that watched that episode of Ghost Adventures knows, they got almost nothing at the Lyceum. They just kept showing all these reenactments of boxes falling downstairs and dudes talking around the bar. But no real paranormal phenomenon in a place that always has it. I think I just lost you. Yeah, uh, we're back oh, now. There you are. Yeah, it's, you know, oh, there it, you are. Uh, I oh, guess... I guess the energies on the other side may be upset about what you're talking about. I'm making light of a serious subject. Oh, that's all right. But, but so you'll know, yeah. Bridget, yeah. Bridget Bishop not only departed the, the Lyceum, she showed up at the witch house. So we not only proved the existence of spirits on that show, but the power of magic. Now, of course, no one knows that because the, even the hosts of the show had no idea the spell I did before I went in. I later confessed it to them. I said, kind of my fault but you know i talked about it in the book but we we did a spell to call her away from there she shows up at the witch house so energy spirits absolutely come for the energy of blood for the energy of life force 
And so you want to be very careful. You don't want to overfeed them because then they can get negative. You also don't want to feed the wrong ones. You know, I often say, Let's talk you about know, that. well, that's very important too. Yeah. Because you want to be Because there's a lot of novices listening right now, and I'm sure there's, you know, somebody's going to try this. And um, uh, folks, I, I want to caution you, you know, this is an expert. Uh, this is a, a professional professional witch. This is a fellow that is a witch. Uh, be careful, you know. If you're not Absolutely. sure what you're doing, you could really get in yourself. Yeah, a don't. Over your no head. one should be doing the stuff in that book unless they read every word of it twice. I'm sorry. You know, you've yeah. got to, you've got to dig through that. This is not a joke, but it can be very. The reason I wrote it is because it can be so rewarding. I mean, it, the dead are not just genies. Excuse me. I mean, that's very important to understand. But they can be called on in important situations. I mean, if you're having trouble in your love life, you want to call on someone in the spirit world. But you also, number one, want to call somebody that meant something to you because you're probably going to mean something to them. Though I sometimes recommend, you know, I'll call on people. You might call on the energies of Martin Luther King if you're wanting to generate buzz for, you know, a great cause of civil rights or something. You know, so it doesn't have to be someone you knew, but it's very important that it relates. In other words, if you're having problems with your love life, you don't call on your aunt that was a nun. You call on your cousin that was a hooker. So... <laughs> Good you don't point. call you don't call on your uncle that bankrupted three businesses to help you with your career you call on your grandfather that was a tycoon you know but at Understood. the same time you want to be sparing when you're when you're asking the dead for favors as opposed to the you know every day you you do something devotional with your ancestral i have an altar of the dead in my house and at the store and robert the skull whose picture is on the book, and he's probably the most famous skull in the world right now because he was on Ghost Adventures and that whole Charlie Sheen calls himself a warlock and suddenly, you know, we're everywhere with Robert. And Robert lives on the altar at Hex. And people, like we have about 5,000 notes at the end of October. Every October we clear them out. People come into the altar at Hex and they write notes to the dead. Sometimes they're long notes. Other times it's just simple things. The year Michael Jackson died, 123 people wrote notes for him. I was very touched by that because it meant that it, people sort of felt that they were just pulled, you know, after all that hullabaloo that went on for so long, mm-hmm. suddenly that got pulled back to what Michael Jackson really mattered in their lives, you know, as far as that goes. And so people connect at that altar with the spirits. And every year we gather before my fireplace in November and we read every note, no matter how long it is. And some of them are just devotional and connection. But every once in a while, you get people asking for help. You know, so you, I think my favorite was, Grandpa, my girlfriend needs a new handbag. That was my personal favorite. But most of them are, you know, I loved you. I, I think of you every day. And it's so powerful because that ancestral altar, or I, I really call it altar of the dead. I, I say ancestral altar, but I, I try to avoid ancestral sometimes because it makes people think of people that lived long ago and not your daughter that died of cancer who may become a guy to you. But Can remember you something. describe that for the folks, what an ancestral um, uh, what altar. You just, altar is uh, right, right well, in your I, house? It's really an altar of the dead. I should correct myself. I sometimes slip because a lot of witches call it an ancestral altar, so I say it sometimes too, but I don't mean to because ancestral to me implies you know some person in my bloodline that lived many centuries ago. That's very powerful too because your bloodline's very powerful. But I felt like it was euphemistic. 
Like, what about your daughter that died of cancer? What about your cousin? What about your best friend that you weren't related to at all? They're not an ancestor, but you might want to connect to that energy. What about Marie Laveau? I keep the voodoo queen on my altar because I love her energy. So, but remember something. Ancestral altar, first and foremost, or altar of the dead, is about making the connection. It's not about how grandiose it is. It's not about how many tchotchkes. I mean, my altars at the store in my house look like the most ramshackle, rag what's the term from Battlestar Galactica, ragtag fleet? I mean, there's just so many things on it. But you know something, if you're like some desperate housewife that lives on Wisteria Lane and your neighbors would think you were nuts, it could be as simple as a lowboy bureau that has a, a, a vase of flowers for your grandmother and a bowl of her favorite candy with a picture, maybe your grandfather's favorite lottery ticket. And no one has to know that they're not your candy lottery tickets or you just don't like flowers. No one has to know it's anything weird. Do I prefer to go all out? Well, of course, look at me. You know what I mean? I, I mean, half the time I'm in war paint and funky hair and top hats and what have you. So there's, a, there's an energy that I, I think certainly goes along with being different, but it, it doesn't have to be. But when you're calling on the spirits for help, don't be trivial. I mean, when I used to do psychic phone readings, uh, people would call every day. When's my man going to call? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Every day. And they would be the same person. And they'd spend 40 minutes at four ninety nine a minute. I'd be like, what are you calling? When's my man going to call? Well, didn't I just tell you? When's my man? You know, and then they would call. Well, well didn't you just call? Well, when's he going to call again? You know, and I'm like, this is just ridiculous. What an absolutely tedious way to live your life. You know, so all I can think of is there, there I am dead. Someday I'm going to die. And I'm going to be in the spirit world. And some wretched cow is going to call me up in the middle of the night with her necromancy to just say, wait, my knee, don't come. And I'll be furious. I mean, you know, don't call me up for nothing. Make sure it's worth my time. It's worth your time. Now, when you do connect with the other side, and uh, do you always present to them uh, a wish list, or is it uh, a request for information? And do they ever offer information that perhaps you weren't even thinking of most of the time it's not anything most of the time it's just offerings of just keeping the connection alive I see. I if see. I love those people I want to stay connected to them but the great thing is is when I need them they are there I mean I know they're not just like some cosmic cash cow credit machine that I stick in you know spiritual cookie in and get the money out you know, it's, in fact, I think that that is the thing I'm trying to get away from. You know, the early Christian necromancy, the pre-Christian Greek necromancy as well, was very violent. You know, they'd call up these, they'd call them the larvae in the Roman term, or the lemures. They were the unquiet dead, those people that died with nobody to love them, so they were pretty sucky spirits. And they'd call them up and say, you know, I will torture you into a thousand deaths unless you do this thing. You know, mind you, they're already dead. And... And if you do it, I'll give you something. I'm thinking, well, that's a horrible... I think the Africans do it better. You know, the African origin ones, you give the offering first. You know, in voodoo and santeria and ancestral religion, you know, they give the offering first. And they build the connection because I'd rather work with my grandmother on the other side than some creep. You know, what are they going to do? Have me call up Hitler? I mean, what, you know, I mean, I'd rather call up... Well, I don't want to call up all the crappy people. I'd rather call up the people I have a connection for. And I don't just want to call them like they're some kind of cash cow. Yeah, you ask them to help when you need it, but you, you, your primary goal is to build the connection. 
Have you ever been able to access um, or connect with, I should say, access is a, is a bad term, uh, have you ever been able to connect with uh, a famous person that would be considered a famous person, uh, perhaps a Marilyn Monroe or, or somebody like that, for their um, energies? Honestly, I mean, other than that time on Penn and Teller when we all decided we were going to contact Bridget Bishop, no. But but the thing is, is that's a reflection of who I am as a person. I think, like, I've had all kinds of celebrities walk into my store because you know, either Lori reads for them, you know, Lori Bruno in my shop, or, you know, they just happen in, and I'm so not, unless it was Barbara Streisand, my eyes don't suddenly glitter, like, I've just never been a celebrity person, like, I, I, I like watching TV sometimes, but, like, I'm not in that awe that most people are, so, like, I wouldn't be the type to go, let's try to contact, you know, Marilyn Monroe, you know, I, I, I'd rather contact somebody I cared to contact, Understood. I didn't know I didn't know Marilyn Monroe. Well, I don't care. <laughs> you know? No, I just thought, you know, perhaps there might be something that... Uh, well, I, I get energy. it. Yeah. I get it. I mean, but, yeah. I, you know, honestly, I'd be more likely as a politics major, uh, you know, to contact somebody that was a great leader or, you know, a great spiritual person or teacher. Or, you know, I, I guess in a sense you're right. I certainly contacted Marie Laveau many a time in my day. and she Well, was you had mentioned a, Dr. King before, and I thought, geez, that would be wonderful to, to contact right. that energy, you know. Um, I've called on his energy, and like in other words, not contact, but, you know, we'll have pictures of people like that on our altar in the shop. Mm-hmm to bring their energy in, but I don't have a conversation necessarily. I just bring the energy in. But Marie Laveau, I've had that dialogue with, and she was certainly the most famous voodoo queen of all time. So, yes, I guess what the answer would be. Have you ever tried to connect with a a loved one, a relative, and they just don't show up? Oh, all the time. All the time. All the time. Okay, so there's no guarantee that if you put that uh, request out there, if you will, to, to connect that... It will be reciprocated. Do you always pick up the phone? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I love your analogy about and the, now they got call the texting ID. thing. <laughs> and <laughs> now they got caller ID. The spirits have caller ID, so they don't always pick up the phone. I love the texting analogy with the Ouija board. I thought that was terrific, by the way. Folks, I'm having fun now. Uh, this is a terrific show. Uh, Christian Day is our guest tonight. What an knowledgeable fellow, isn't he? He's right on that. Uh, the Witch's Book of the Dead is the, the name of the book, and uh, easy way to get it is always www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on that book cover, order the book. Um, but again, a little bit of a, a warning there, folks, as we've been saying all along. If you're a novice to all this, uh, read the book and really be prudent of what, what you're going to uh, partake in. Um, there are some spells in the book. And one of them here is a ritual, I should say, the Halloween night ritual. I was wondering if you could walk us through that, just a a brief synopsis about it, just to give people an idea of what's in the book and what they can expect. Would you mind doing that, Christian? Well, I can. I mean, the idea of ritual, I mean, this was the toughest part of the book for me, to be honest, Mm. because all my rituals are always different. Like, my Halloween ritual that I do every Halloween will incorporate pieces that are in that one, but they'll always change with every year because there's something new I learn or something new I want to take people through. Um, you know, but the general gist, you know, when I sat down to do this, the tough thing for me and why I've never really been able to keep a regular book of shadows like some witches do because I'm so fluid in how I do things was actually creating permanent rituals. I mean, the dumb supper is easy because I do it every year. So, well, that's easy to, you know, I kind of do it as a big event. 
um, and it doesn't change as much. But something like the Halloween ritual, that was a tough one. But what you see in the book is a general idea of creating a magical place where we honor the dead. So I have my, you know, I have a recipe for what I call spirit powder in there because a lot of witchcraft circles deal with the idea of either building boundaries to protect us from every evil spirit or building these boundaries that raise and build the energy within. I tend not to cast a circle in my everyday magic like many Wiccans do. I go up to my altar and my aura is the magic. You know, it's always on. Never goes off. Uh, but when I'm in a group setting, it's very powerful to create sacred space. But I do so with this, you know, ritual of uh, spirit powder to kind of, rather than salt. You know, a lot of the traditional regular Wiccan holiday rituals and, and and full moon and what have you deal with the energy of salt. I don't do that because the dead run from the salt. You know, salt's very repellent. I, I you know, my initial blessing of an of an altar, I would rub it down with. You know, maybe salt water or a little salt in the water with Murphy's oil soap. Only that one time to do the initial cleansing. And then there's no salt on the altar of the dead. There's no salt in the ritual. Um, I use the bronze blade as opposed to, you know, iron or steel or what have you. Because in the ancient world, the bronze, they would run from. You know, in the Odyssey, the spirits ran from Odysseus's bronze sword. Not because he could cut them, but because the of it repelled them so the holiday is about taking that space creating it making it sacred but then to but it's more than that it's you know you're connecting to the dead and they are honored first so the chalice is for them the food is for them if you share in it you partake in the food of the dead and that's okay to do but it's very important to know that like Persephone in the underworld, once you eat from that food, you are in their world. And for that ritual, you, you know, you've got to make sure you're serious about it. I often, and I do this in the book, have people face the mirror of mortality. And the idea of that is to stare into the mirror till you see your own reflection of death because ultimately it is a reminder of the fact that we too shall become like them. And so it's a very powerful ritual and it's, you know, in most modern witchcraft, it's the only day that's given to the dead. I mean, in my work, it's every day. You know, in many witchcraft traditions, you know, they truck the dead out at Halloween and they barely even give them that. You know, it's often watered down or, you know, we have any, you know, and it's just not, it's not a direct connection. You know, the dead, it's hardcore. You know, you're bringing these people in. You love them. They were important to you. Let's celebrate them. One of the things in the ritual that creeped me out is the fact that when you join the circle, when you're entering into the circle, you have to give up. What was it? I'm, just, I'm going to paraphrase it. Essentially, it says that uh, you have to say the effect that you're willing to give up your life and join the dead and not be afraid to do that. I don't. Their world. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. You know, I, that's I, the night of their world. But yeah. that's their world. But here's the thing: I make another pretty ballsy comment earlier on that that you know people took issue with during the editing process. You know, friends, when you would look at this and they'd say, "Oh, what are you? You know, was uh, you do sell your soul, but you sell it to yourself." You know, people couldn't relate to what that meant, and. The idea is that I so then I went back and I over-explained it, you know, because originally it didn't have the extra, you know, this idea that you know it's not that we're selling our souls to the devil. I don't believe in a a devil, 
I mean, I certainly believe there are negative entities out there, but not like this master devil that, you know, ho you know, leads all the demons and is, you know, their only interest is in destroying mankind. I don't believe in that crap. But what I do believe is that from the moment we're born, somebody's put their stamp on us. You do it this way. You act this way. You think this way. You, you know, you carry yourself this way. You believe this way. You love this way. You hate this way. You know, someone has had, someone's owned our soul from day one. Is that God you know, for you? No. Uh, I don't you, mean in a Christian sense. Uh, no, I just mean in no, a creative no, no, sense. No, 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 okay. no. On the contrary, it's quite the opposite. You know, when we're born, the one that owns our soul, our parents, our society, our peers, our teachers, our, our leaders, you know, there's this idea that we are at the beck and call of these people. And yes, you've got to follow the law, and yes, you should do what your parents tell you, within, you know, as long as they're not you know, telling you to go kill people or whatever. You know, but the idea is that when you make that pact that I talk about in Chapter 2, Opening the Doorway, that you declare yourself a creature of spirit, you are selling your soul back to yourself. In other words, it wasn't yours. You're taking You're ownership of yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, that's where the idea of the pact came from originally. You know, it's this thing, if, you know, the, you look at it, I mean, if you look at the modern, you know, Satanist movement, I mean, I'm not a Satanist, I have friends that are, and what I've really kind of drawn from the gist of their message, you know, they're not devil worshippers, they're more like hedonistic, you know, agnostics, if anything. But what I've drawn from their message is this idea that those pacts were about rebellion wasn't about really signing your soul over to the devil. It was like saying, screw you to the world that's trying to tell me what to do. And that's really what it is. It's about taking your soul back. It's about it's not about giving it away to anybody else. It's about selling it back to you, because, well, buying it back, if anything, kind of like buying your way out of slavery that people used to do. You know, you had the free people of color buying their way. Well, you're doing the same thing. And so, you know, can you declare yourself in the realm of the dead for that one night? Can't, do you have the courage to walk in their worlds? Well, isn't that what a witch is? We walk between the worlds. Everyone is psychic to some degree. Everyone has magic. Everyone has the spark of creation, destruction, life force, death force, all of it swimming within them. However, not all of us take the full potential of that. I mean, everyone can boil an egg except me. Um, Really, I don't. I can't cook, but you know, I, I can make a box of mac and cheese. But I usually eat the spaghettios out of the can. But the point is, everybody can cook something. But not everybody is the master chef. Not everybody is the grandmother with the recipe box. Not everybody is the expert. Witches are not special creatures. We are creatures of magic because we choose to be. You know, it's like the werewolf that transforms. Witches are creatures of magic because we become creatures of magic, or we're born in that way where we don't ever turn it off. You know, some people are certainly born with more talent than others, just like someone who's born more dexterous is going to be able to cook better, or somebody who's born with a better instrument is going to be a better vocalist. Not everybody is born with the instrument of a Luciano Pavarotti, but Joe Cocker sold an awful lot of records by croaking. Go figure. You know, everybody has their taste. And so you can take what you have and make magic from it. And that is what we all have the potential to do. But do we all choose to? No. So that's why we're not all witches. Witches are, and warlocks, are sorcerers, wizards. I don't really care what word you call me. It's all words. 
But what's it describing? It's describing that person you go to for help in the darkest hour of need. I realize witches are not the people people seek out first. First they go to the church, they go to the authorities, they go to their mother, they go to their friends, they go to whoever. And then when everything else fails, oh God, that creepy person over there that lives at the edge of the forest, we've always been warned against her. But everything else has failed. Well, where do you go? I mean, look at this story that's played out for thousands of years. King Saul in the Bible with the witch of Endor. He was, he was banishing witches. Where did he go? Cloaked and veiled in the dead of night. Christian, is it part? Is it faith as well? Um, does faith come into it if you believe that casting a spell or uh, doing something that will cause an effect that it will actually happen? And if you don't have that faith, it just won't happen. Um, I think that's an interesting question because a, 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 a magical conjuring friend of mine said recently that faith is the bridge upon which miracles trod. And that's my friend Orion Foxwood, who would be a wonderful guest, by the way. And I'd always had a difficulty as a kind of, you know, you wouldn't know this, but I'm kind of agnostic about many of the greater spiritual questions out there. And so faith was difficult for me and always has been. But I feel like there's a mechanism within faith that's very similar to the mechanism of knowledge when you truly know something to be true. And I know magic is real. So in a sense, I don't need to have faith in it. I proved it on Ghost Adventures. I watched it happen. I watched it play out. I did this thing. That's why I love Lori Cabot. She teaches witchcraft in a scientific way. So she says, okay, if you can test it and you can do it and watch the results, well, there it is. And that's, you know, I studied with her 20 years ago. And I learned, you know, this can be scientific. You can approach this in a way that's methodical. But I also have learned over the years that I think there is an importance to the, the idea of what faith is describing. Not blind belief. That's not the same. No one should believe blindly. If you're going around believing in magic for years and it's never working, then find something else to do or learn to do it better. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but... The idea is it shouldn't be blind belief. Faith is the faith in your own ability because you know you have it. Okay. So faith does require a bit of knowledge. I know how to do this, so I have faith that it's going to work. Well, if I have no clue how to do it, I'm not going to walk up to that kitchen and have faith that that omelet's going to come out right because let me tell you, it ain't. I hear you. Folks, uh Incredible guest tonight, isn't he? Just wonderful. I'm learning so much, folks. Uh, he's very articulate, very, very knowledgeable, uh, expert. Uh, he is a witch. Uh, his name is Christian Day. The book is called The Witch's Book of the Dead. As I've been saying all night long, you notice I've been abnormally quiet tonight. Eh? I'm learning, that's why. Whenever I learn, you should have seen me in university. I was the guy. Mm. <laughs> Triple W. I just talk too much. <laughs> not at all, not at all. I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying this, and I mean that with all sincerity. www.nightfrightshow.com These are subjects, folks, you know, I like to touch on and break down the taboos. You know, people have been ostracized, persecuted. Are you persecuted right now because of your, your, your beliefs? Oh, no. You know, I think when I first came into this city... Uh, business, I should say. I was born in Beverly, one town north, and I've lived in Salem often on my whole life. But when I first came into the business, you know, there were people that had issues with witches that I had to come up against. And, you know, it's, it's always very underlying because I'm kind of a brassy personality, so people won't discriminate against me openly. But I have felt certain opportunities might not have been there. But you know something? I, I'm hesitant to even go there because you know, someone said to me many years ago, 
uh, the people who run the witch's voice, witchfox.com, that we do not anticipate prejudice, therefore we don't really experience it. And yeah, okay, if I'm, if I'm you know, practicing witchcraft in a trailer park in Alabama, people are probably going to throw rocks at me or Molotov cocktails or whatever. You know, yeah, there's exceptions to every rule. But generally I've been able to go anywhere and, and be respected because I respect myself. And that's a very important point because in the modern witch, in the modern witchcraft community, I'm constantly hearing, "My Christians really hate me, and they're persecuting me." And you know what? When I really scratch the surface and I look at these people and how they carry it themselves in their daily life, no one is persecuting them more than them. Good point. You know, Good they're point. so down on themselves, they're so paranoid and insecure about their own status that they practically bring it on the way fearing a dog gets you bitten. You know, it's you don't put it out there. So, you know what? Okay, fine. When I first started the business in 2003, Festival of the Dead, they would not let Sean, my deceased business partner, and I join our local tourism office. Now I'm on the board of directors. I just ah. kept sticking my I kept sticking my foot like the vacuum cleaner sets. I didn't care. And you know, some ways it was awful. I remember the first year we did the vampires ball and I had the vampire woman in the bikini with blood all over her boobs and fangs and we made the eleven o'clock news and we had wallpaper pasted them everywhere. Then we went to see Dracula the musical in New York and Sean and I were like, We weren't there, this was just our friends. You know, they're running around scraping them off the poles. And this city's so uptight about sex. You can't touch on that topic at all. It was awful. But it was funny because we basically said well if you don't let witches happen here we'll give you something worse so <laughs> we, well the following year was serial killers just so you know we, we even up the ante more we had like ropes from ted bundy and what about but i mean we really sean and i really went there back in the day but basically we just kept sticking the knife and going oh you don't like witches what about this and after like two years of this torture they finally started to warm up to us so it's like, fine, you can be prejudiced against me, but I'm going to up the ante and make you either like me or at least kowtow. And so now they love us because we're, you know, we're part of the game. But we had to get to be part of the game. Good for you, and I think that's a great way to end it. We're running out of time. Uh, our guest tonight has been Christian Day, folks. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm sure you have. Thank too. you, Brent. It has just absolutely been um, extremely educational, and you're breaking down those barriers. And that's why one of the reasons why I started this show is to do that and bring these these uh, new ideas forward. New, not new ideas. What am I trying to say? Uh, just you know, break down those barriers, get rid of the stereotypes, and just accept people for people and the goodness. That's inherent in all of us. The book is called The Witch's Book of the Dead. Easy way to get it, as I said all night, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover. Take you right to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. I'm Brent Holland. I'm looking at the time. i got to run. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us and watching the show. Thank you again to Christian Day. See you next time. Thank Bye -bye. you all. Listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio.